Welcome to The Great Work radio program. The Great Work radio and blog are features of Jesse War's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J-E-S-S-E-W-A-U-G-H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoy today's program. Hello and thank you for tuning in to The Great Work. We welcome Judith Noble of the Arts University College at Bournemouth for a revealing discussion on the films of American avant-garde filmmakers Maya Darren and Kenneth Anger. I begin by asking Judith why art cinema is just now beginning to be recognized in an art historical context. I think it's because um, the avant-garde film in America is mainly being studied by film theoreticians to date, and they have a very different approach from art historians. And uh, they, you know, they tend to look at the work from a very materialistic and um, kind of Freudian, Lacanian standpoint. And that that's difficult in relation to the American avant-garde, and particularly, I think, in relation to Anger and to Deren, because there's so much more going on. Whereas art history... Um, looks in a more rounded way at the work and the intentions of the people who made it, their lives, their politics, how, how those fed the work. So um, it's, it's, for me, it's a much better way, I think, of looking at the work. Well, do you think that that's because the work is primarily magical and therefore irrational? I think that's got a lot to do with it. I think that film studies have found it very hard to deal with the irrational and the magical. Um, whereas, whereas art history at the moment is looking in quite a lot of detail at that, so that you know that that's helpful. Um, but I, I think I think it's also uh, just to do with this. This work has always been, or it's been influential massively on subsequent cinema. You know, if you listen to Scorsese, um, he, he will repeatedly talk about the influence of avant-garde filmmakers on him and other mainstream practitioners. Um, but but the work itself has been hard to see until the advent of DVD and the web, and therefore very marginal. Well, that's what I was thinking. I mean, the one major problem with cinema as a whole is that it can't be hung on a wall. No, you exactly. Know? So exactly. it's not seen as it's not seen as art, quote unquote. You know. Uh, absolutely, and um, it's it, and it's even more simple than that in a way. When when I first started becoming very interested in Darren's work in about 1979. In the UK, it, you could only see the work on 16mm film prints, and they were out of distribution. Wow, um, wow. And so, you know, you could read um, in the wonderful work of P. Adam Sidney, who, who's a great critic about her films, but you couldn't actually see them. And in 1980, um, and the subsequent two years, together with um, a woman called Felicity Sparrow, I, I kind of campaign to get her work reprinted and back into distribution in the UK. But it was still, you know, for, for a good um, 10 or so years, the way you could get to see my Darren was to hire a print from London Filmmakers Co-op, usually with me coming around and talking about it as well. You know, so it wasn't easy if you were interested in that work to actually get to see it. Did the same go for Kenneth Anger? Because I, I went to film school in 94, 95 in LA and Hollywood. And they didn't even, in the film history class, they didn't even mention Kenneth Anger or Maya Darren once. Which is extraordinary, really. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's, it's the same with Anger, but, uh, but also um, Kenneth, Kenneth Anger is quite rightly an absolute perfectionist and has always really carefully controlled 
the way his work is seen and the quality of it. So I can remember in the 1980s there were people distributing pirate VHS copies of his work, which of course didn't, didn't do it great justice. But he himself, you know, insisted that the work should be seen properly um, on good prints. And it wasn't until, oh, you know, some seven or eight years ago when the Getty Foundation financed um, the restoration of the prints of his work that it was easily available on DVD. So, yeah, you know, same thing, same thing going on, really. In your, um, in your talk, you mentioned something about um, artifacts overlooked. Does that have to do with what we're talking about? It does. Yeah, yeah it, okay. do, it does. And all, all, the, all, the, all the stuff I've pulled together is very easily available. It's there in the information about the lives of these two filmmakers, and it's there in the work, but it's been an aspect of the work that's just very much been overlooked. And uh, you mentioned, let's get into Maya Darren a little bit. Uh, you mentioned okay. that you saw Maya Darren as a classicist, or she saw herself as one? She, she began describing herself as a classicist from the end of the 1940s onwards. It, it, was a, it was a description she liked and she did a lot of work on. And I can see why it kind of really fits um, with the way that she structured her work and what she was trying to do and her relationship to mythology. And the very, uh, there's a very intellectual aspect to her work. And I think that um, I, I kind of follow that description because... I, it's her description, and it's the way she wanted to be seen. It's not the only uh, only aspect of the work, of course, but yes, that was how she described herself. Was she referring to uh, Greek mythology specifically, or or just general mythology? Yeah, I I think Greek Greek Roman mythology. Um, the last um, film in in what might be called her trilogy of short films. Ritual in Transfigured Time takes its inspiration from the idea of the three fates or the three graces. And not, not just the idea, but the way she, um, she shows the three fates in that film is, is extremely classical. The way, that, the way that the characters move and the backgrounds are set against, very, very much Greco-Roman, yeah. How many films did Maya Darren complete? Oh, complete. She, she made Messages of the made, Afternoon, yeah. Atlanta and Ritual in Transfigured Time, which are the trilogy. She made Meditation on Violence in 1947 and The Very Eye of Night in 1955, 6. So that, uh, and studying choreography for the camera in the 40s. So there are, yeah, six completed films. And she also left Witch's Cradle uncompleted. And there was a lot of um, footage of her uh, work on voodoo in Haiti, which was um, unedited at the time of her death, which has been assembled um, uh, since her death. So, so there are two substantial um, unfinished things as well. And then in contrast, you categorized anger as a colorist. I think so. Um, I, 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 I like that. Um, that, uh, that description of him because I think colour is, is really the defining and most important of his, a characteristic of his work. It's what makes it so gorgeous and beautiful, but it also always has very precise um, symbolic and magical meanings. Uh, so for anger, I think, yeah, colour is, is the most important characteristic. Yeah. Did they ever meet, by the way, or no? Uh, Darren and uh, Anger? 
Yes, I believe they did. There's not much, very much recorded about it, but uh, I believe they did. And yeah. what was Anais Nin, what was she known for? Okay, she well, she's a, she's a writer, um, very much connected at the beginning of her career with surrealism, and uh, was, I think, the lover of the novelist Henry Miller, and was... Um, in, in later life, very much championed by feminists as, the, as a woman who, very much ahead of her time in the, in the 1950s, wrote about quite extreme sexual liberation. And she leaves quite a large body of writing and some wonderful, wonderful diaries, which are, which are published. She um, played one of the three fates in Darren's film, Ritual and Transfigured Time, and she gives a very full account of that in her diaries. And um, later on, um, she'd moved to the West Coast and she features in a major way in Kenneth Anger's inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. Oh, okay. So she's visibly present in the films of both filmmakers in very, very different ways. Okay, and then you'd also mentioned that um, uh, Maya Darren was uh, an associate or friend of uh, Marcel Duchamp. Yes. Yeah, this, the second film in the trilogy, Atland, uses um, a chess piece as a central metaphor, and, and it's, um, it, it's, uh, it's a metaphor for Darren's own self. She starts, um, at the beginning of the film, she, um, having emerged uh, from the sea uh, as a kind of alien creature on, on the land, she finds herself in uh, a room where people are playing chess, and the chess pieces move of their own volition, and she then steals a chess piece, uh, which represents herself and then kind of chases it through a series of different scenarios before very triumphantly running away with it into the distance between the land and the sea at the end of the film. So that film has chess um, there, there in a major way. And uh, she, she played chess in the early 1940s in New York with Marcel Duchamp quite regularly, and he appears in the unfinished film, which is Cradle. Oh, okay, so... So he may have had some sort of influence on that motif or that idea? I think so. Yeah. I think so. Okay, and then you'd also mentioned uh, three Kabbalistic initiations, that three of her films were sort of Kabbalistic initiations. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, um, that's very much my, uh, my reading as an occultist of Darren's trilogy of films, Meshes of the Afternoon, um, At Land and Ritual in Transfigured Time. Um, so, uh, uh, and I think that becomes, it, it's, it's there implicitly in Meshes of the Afternoon. It becomes very apparent um, and explicit in At Land. And, and then it's worked on again in, in um, Ritual and Transfigured Time. So in the first film, um, she's, uh, she, the, the first initiation is really the discovery of the inner self and what that means. Uh, in the second film, At Land, uh, what she's doing is placing that self in, in, in the world and, and the initiation is about learning how to deal with the external world and she, she writes um, very, very wonderfully about that in her notes for the film and in the third film, Ritual in Transfigured Time, in a classic kind of magical, Kabbalistic um, initiation scenario, she is reenacting the sacred marriage um, uh, and integrating the, the, the self uh, with the other. So that's, that, that's very much my reading of those three films, yeah. When did you first hear about Maya Darren? 
at well, that time? Well, I, I, um, I did a, a fine art degree um, from 1975 to 78, and my area of study that I gravitated to was experimental film. And at the time, um, I, uh, along with most other women students, I was very concerned to see work by women because there just wasn't any. You know, you just presented with an extremely male art world and, and, and um, women were just absent from it. But in all the writing about avant-garde film, at the beginning there, was that there were all these references to the first American avant-garde filmmaker, Maya Deren, and um, I you know, rapidly worked out that, that she was a woman and started learning about her. But as I said to you earlier at the time, I can get to see the films because... Um, the, the single copies of the, the, the of prints of the films which were held at the time by in the UK by the British Film Institute had um, really sort of got to the end of their useful life. Um, they weren't asked for very much, so they weren't making more copies, and it wasn't until 1980 that I managed to get the rather scratchy prints out of the archive, and I looked at them, uh, and I was amazed because the descriptions of Darren's work that I read were all about how she reinvented editing um, and made great advances in, in, in how an avant-garde film could, could, could be edited. And I was just absolutely shocked to find that they, the films were really full of magical content, which I'd never have guessed from what was written about them. I then went on to um, get the film with, with colleagues, get the films back into distribution, and I wrote... Um, program notes and booklets for the Arts Council of England, who were incredibly supportive, funded the work. Um, they had a really wonderful um, film officer working there called David Curtis, who just understood completely the importance of getting Darren's work back into distribution. So we did that. And for about 10 years, I, I used to travel all over the UK, screening her work at all sorts of venues, kind of large urban ones and small out-of-the-way rural ones, anywhere that wanted to see them. So that, that was my introduction to the work, really. Your own films, are they, uh, are they symbolist? Are they magical? And do you st yes. are you still yes, making films are. now? Yeah, I, I, no, I'm not, I'm not making films now. I, I made um, a number of films when I was in my 20s, which are all held at the um, British Film and Video Artists Archive at St. Martin's School of Art. And... Um, People are kind enough to write about them from time to time. They, they, they were very much magical films, yes. And those, those would be under Judith Noble? No, um, they'd be under the name Judith Higginbottom. I got married a few years ago and changed my name, so um, those would probably be um, best known under, under the name Judith Higginbottom. Obviously, Kenneth Anger was influenced by Aleister Crowley. Was Maya Darren ever, did it, she ever have anything to do with Aleister Crowley? Not directly, uh, no. Um, as as I've done a lot of research on um, where her interest in occultism came from, and she seems to have read Francis Barrett's book, The Magus, which would have been you know, in, in, in a fairly standard kind of go-to magical work um, at the beginning of the 1940s when you know, not that much was available. And she had contact with various occultists uh, in the late 1930s and the early 1940s, very notably um, Alvin Lustig, who was, who was a graphic designer. I don't think that, as far as I can tell, that he had direct contact with Crowley, but um, 
there is an indirect link because she um, researched a book on witchcraft for the writer William Seabrook. That's a book called Witchcraft, Its Power in the World Today, which was published in the U.S. in 1941. And Seabrook had, had worked with Crowley in the U.S. in 1919. And, and Seabrook was extremely influenced by him. I, um, there aren't many records of you know, conversations between Darren and Seabrook as she was doing this research, so I don't know whether Crowley was talked about, but um, there was that indirect link. Can you tell us more about Seabrook? I heard you mention him in the talk as well. Yeah, William Seabrook um, was a journalist and a writer of kind of very, very mass market popular books um, on quite, uh, quite sort of, I suppose you call them salacious subjects, witchcraft from a, a rather shock horror point of view, cannibalism, voodoo, etc. Um, there's a bit more to him than that. He'd had contact in the late 20s and early 30s with the Surrealists, and he had written um, articles for a journal edited by Georges Bataille called Document. I, uh, he, he then had a falling out with the Surrealists and Bataille and returned to New York. He wrote, he wrote a book on voodoo in the late 30s, and Darren was um, trying to scrape a living as a freelance writer before she made films, in, in 1940, and she just answered a job advert and went and did the research for his book. He was a, a, quite a bizarre character. Uh, he subsequently asked her to go and participate in experiments in what he described as extrasensory perception at his very isolated farmhouse home in upstate New York, and off she went, and... She discovered when they got there, when she got there, that these were really kind of S&M games um, designed for Seabrook's gra- sexual gratification. And she challenged him on this, and he uh, he admitted that that was the case. And she went away very quickly back to New York without without actually um, do, doing any of this stuff. There's a very full account of it in the wonderful um, biography of her, The Legend of Maya Deron, the, the, the second volume of that, um, where, where her letters about it to various people are reprinted. Um, so, so um, yeah, you know, that, that was her contact with Seabrook. She was an extremely feisty person by all accounts, and I think she really got the better of him. He had been treated for alcoholism before this, and he committed suicide um, some years after a kind of, you know, strange fringe uh, character. I've got a, a copy of the book that Darren helped to research, Witchcraft, Its Power in the World Today. And it, it's a kind of cross-cultural study of witchcraft. It's very accessible. It makes a couple of good serious points, but it's essentially a kind of um, it's pulp nonfiction, I would have said. It's rather interesting, though, that uh, both Maya Darren and then Kenneth Anger both have connections or indirect connections to Aleister Crowley. He seems Aleister Crowley seems to have gotten his tentacles into like every aspect of American pop culture, and I guess English too pop culture in in the um, it, yeah, for pretty much yeah. the entire twentieth century. I mean, even after he was dead, he was still influencing rock and roll heavily, wasn't he? Yeah, but, but very much so. Although I would have said that the the links with Devin, Darren are actually very indirect. Um, she never references him, and I, I think that she's um, in her very kind of intellectual, classical outlook on life, probably a million miles from Crowley's approach to the world. 
Yeah, um, although yeah. you could say that what they both have in common was a formidable intellect, I guess. But with anger, it's completely different. You know, ang- anger is uh, um, is inspired by Crowley. Is happy to say that. Um, references Crowley very explicitly in his films. I'm sure you're aware. You know, there are points in various of the films where Crowley's image appears on screen, and, and so there's no doubt about that at all. I I, I would like to advance the theory, I think, that, that part of the influence of Crowley on pop culture is actually due to Kenneth Anger and his films. Really? I think without, without Anger's films that um, Crowley would not have had the influence that he has. Um, Anger's um, made his, you know, popularized Crowley's work. How is that, though? Um, the Rolling Stones, the, the Beatles, the Beach Boys... Um, they were all oh and and what is it Led Zeppelin or Jimmy Page or something I don't even know all these bands yeah, that went, but Page, they were yeah. all they were all introduced to Crowley through anger and were they seeing his anger's film somehow or how did that work? Um, they the the Rolling Stones were very definitely influenced uh, um, introduced to Crowley's work by Kenneth Anger because Kenneth Anger worked with the Rolling Stones in London between 1966 and 69. Um, some, some people have described him as their muse, and he was very heavily influential on their, on their work. Um, he was introduced to them by Anita Pallenberg, uh, who was at the time the partner of Brian Jones and then um, later the partner of Keith Richards. So there's, a, there's an incredibly direct link there. But I think what, uh, Angus' works were being very widely exhibited in London in, in, in the mid-60s. Oh, were they? And, yeah, yeah, phenomenally. Uh, at all, all, sorts, all sorts of places at, at gigs. Um, you, you know, you, you can look back at, at programs um, for, for various music clubs were in the psychedelic scene in, in London that was just beginning to grow up in 65 and 66. And you'll see, you know, all-nighters with lists of five or six bands playing and in between, you know, somewhere in the middle of the night. Um, they're, they're showing Angus movies. So Angus movies became very widely seen in, in, the, in the London you know, countercultural psychedelic scene of, of the mid-60s. That's kind of strange. Um, it's kind of strange that they, they weren't really shown in L.A. at all, right? Uh, I, I, I gather not. Um, I think partly to do with the fact that at the time, you know, the greatest um, proselytizer for Angus works was Anger in person, and Anger was in London. Okay. Um, so, you know, it, it makes sense that the films are really widely seen in London, and um, perhaps only later um, in, in Los Angeles and San Francisco. You know, Anger went back to live in the U.S. in 1969. Um, and, and from then on, you know, was showing his films very widely. Um, they were be they were being seen, and he was working, particularly in San Francisco. Part of um, a large part of Invocation of My Demon Brother, um, which was released in 1969, is um, a filmed ritual um, which Anger performs at the Strait Theatre uh, on the autumn equinox in 1966. So he was certainly around, you know, and working. In, um, in in San Francisco at the time, but maybe you know the, the, the London scene was just more conducive to looking at films that way. Um, yeah, looking yeah, at films outside it, yeah. the cinema. Yeah. Sorry. What theater was that in San Francisco that he uh, performed the ritual at? Um, it was a place called the Straight Theater, which is a ron- wonderfully ironic 
name, isn't it, for, for, for anything that Kenneth Anger had to do with. <laughs> yeah. 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 And and he, he, was, um, he, he thought at the time that he was making his film Lucifer Rising, but um, he abandoned the first version of that and used that footage in Invocation of My Demon Brother. So those were offcuts then? I don't think they were offcuts. Um, the, he, he, he tells a lot of stories about what happened to the film. At the time, he was very closely in, involved with a man called Bobby Beausoleil, mm-hmm, yeah, um, mm. who had been kind of, kind of fringe figure on the music scene and um, sadly is now best remembered because he be- subsequently became a member of the Manson family and is serving a life sentence. Um, at San for, Quentin, yeah, I, I saw his um, I saw his Facebook page. He has a Facebook page yeah, with some of his know, music on it. Yeah, it's great. It, it, it's often erroneously believed that he was one of the people who murdered Sharon Tate. He wasn't. He he, he was already he'd already been arrested when that murder happened. He'd taken part in the murder of someone called Gary Hinman. Yeah. But he 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 had been involved with Anger, and Anger intended that he would play Lucifer in Lucifer Rising, and in '66. There was some kind of immense falling out. Um, and I'm trying to be careful to get, get this right because this is a very contested story. Anger um, said that Bobby Beausoleil stole the footage of Lucifer Rising and therefore he had to abandon the film. But Bobby Beausoleil has always denied this. And as quite a large chunk of the, that original footage has actually turned up in Invocation of My Demon Brother, you know, make, make, make of that what you will. Um, as the Crowleyites would, would say. Do you um, think that, did, what, does, Ang, does Kenneth Anger say anything about whether or not he had influence on the Mansons or not? Or do you know? No, he, he doesn't. Did? No, he doesn't. And I don't think he would have done because um, as, as far as uh, I or anyone else can ascertain, um, Bobby Beausoleil didn't meet the Manson family until uh, a couple of years after he, he'd um, parted with Anger. I see. Okay, and you've you've interviewed Kenneth Anger. You said more than once. I, I talked to him um, some years ago now, when he was showing his work in London and exhibiting his his um, photographs. Yeah. Do you remember what you guys had a conversation about, or what you mentioned? Um, well, <laughs> they were very they they were very much uh, at the time the conversation to the fan. You know, I I I am a fan of Anger's work, and they. they I, I wouldn't, I'm not sure I'd dignify the conversation for the name interview. <laughs> um, just, just, you know, me explaining how much I like the work and uh, asking a couple of questions, yeah. Yeah. Back to Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger, um, in, I think it's the video for Sympathy for the Devil, like the music video for it. He's, mm-hmm. he's dancing on the catwalk or whatever he's on, and he has say, like tattoos of the devil on his chest or his arm. Was that a result of having been exposed to anger and, and Crowley? Um, very, very, very much so. Really? Um, anger, anger um, uh, inspired um, the really inspired the Rolling Stones' in interest in in um, the figure of Lucifer and the the if you you know the the lyrics to Sympathy for the Devil are very much about um, a Miltonian conception of Lucifer as the rebel angel who brings. Um, freedom and knowledge to to mankind, and that you know that that comes very directly from anger. But I think what's also quite interesting is that there was there was a fascination with this idea of Lucifer in the um, in the London scene in the mid 60s, and several writers have referred to it. I think Kenny 
Rain's probably coined the phrase at the time of Luciferian London. Mm. And um, one of the other fascinating figures, also sadly, sadly no longer with us in that scene, was Donald Camel. Donald Camel is best known as the co-director of performance, a feature film, and later the director of Demon Seed. And um, Camel, Camel, uh, Camel's work on performance is, of course, quite extraordinary, but that, that film stars Mick Jagger. And Camel was, was quite celebrated in London in the mid-60s because his father, um, who was a, a, a rich Scottish um, shipyard owner, had been briefly in the 1930s very good friends with Alistair Crowley. And uh, when Donald Camel was a little sort of two-year-old, three-year-old lad, Alistair Crowley had on several occasions been his babysitter. Oh. And, uh, so, he, you know, I know, I know. It's, 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 that sounds pretty amazing. Delightful, <laughs> absolutely delightful. Wow. So he, so Camel enjoyed, uh, you know, enjoyed a kind of considerable kind of cachet um, in London in the 1960s. Wow, you know, you, you, what, you, you were babysat by Alistair Crowley. What was that like? Probably he, he, you know, like most of us, don't remember that much about when we we're, we're, we're two or three, but, but, but there, there's Donald Camel. And Donald Camel was also very influenced by Kenneth Anger. You know, they were around the Rolling Stones at the same time uh, in, in that same milieu, which was all centered around uh, Robert Fraser's art gallery. Um, so there was, a, there was a scene around that. Uh, Robert Fraser was bringing work by new American artists, mainly pop artists, and, and showing work by new British artists. The people who are hanging out at the gallery, attending the openings and the parties and buying the work with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles too, very much. You know, Paul McCartney was one of uh, Robert Fraser's uh, great customers. And Donald Camel was there and Kenneth, Kenneth Anger was there. Kenneth Anger actually lived in one of Robert Fraser's apartments um, uh, and, it, and that, that apartment features in, in Lucifer Rising. So they were all there together. So there's, there's anger... He's very much influencing Donald Camel. You can really see that in, in, in performance. And Camel is on record as saying Anger at the time was his greatest influence. And, and there's Mick Jagger, um, uh, you know, very, very much um, in, enjoying learning all this Luciferian stuff from Kenneth Anger and writing uh, the, the, the fabulous, you know, three-note repetitive Moog soundtrack for... Um, Invocation of My Demon Brother, and then he stars in Camel's film Performance. So there are all these very close links. Um, Was there any cross-pollination between Andy Warhol Factory and, and the Fraser Gallery by any chance? Not, 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 um, not especially. Um, I, I think um, Fraser was um, showing works by were Lichtenstein, Jim Dine, all manner of pop artists, and I think he had a couple of Warhol pieces, but I don't think there was too much direct connection, although I haven't researched that in any great detail. There's a lovely book on Robert Fraser. Uh, it's called Groovy Bob. It, it's by a writer called Harriet Viner, uh, and I really recommend that if anyone wants to look at that whole nexus of connections that, you know, coming, coming from Robert Fraser, who's a fascinating um, figure and kind of animating that scene in London in the 60s. And then uh, Mick Jagger cuts off relations uh, with Kenneth Anger at some point? Yes. Yes, he does. Is Mick Jagger having some kind of, like, revelation that Christianity's good, or is he just, like, sick of oh, messing no. with demons or <laughs> Well, whatever? maybe you could, maybe, you know, it'd be nice to ask him. I, I, I wouldn't <laughs> presume um, 
to you know to to, to have any idea what was in Mick Jagger's yeah. mind. But the the commonly accepted view is that um, when uh, what 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 finally finished this whole flirtation with the occult, with Lucifer, with the idea the idea of the uh, of the devil for the Rolling Stones was the Altamont Festival in the U.S. Um, you know, which which we can all look at in the Males Brothers um, film "Gimme Shelter," where um, uh, one of the audience was killed by Hell's Angels, who were supposedly providing security at the gig. It's generally held, and I, and I think um, you you can check this in Keith Richards' rather wonderful autobiographer autobiography Life, which is a great read. Uh, you know, he he confirms that. So, so you know, they 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 were really into this idea, and he he was, and Denise Pallenberg, his his partner, was very into this Luciferian idea, and that that um, that death and the whole process that went on there, um, I think, you know, made made them turn away um, very very much from. Was that person the person who died? Was they trampled or something? Because it sounds almost like it sounds almost like they were sacrificed or something, and that that turned them off. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that 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 could be one way of reading it, but, but mm-hmm. I think it's just a, a, a horrible murder. You know that, that this was a um, a kind of festival gig that, that that went wrong, and they 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 give various accounts of it. They you know thought it was like another lovely American festival gig in the spirit of Woodstock, and when they got there, there was a realized the atmosphere was really horrible. Well, that's that's in um, the Bay Area, right? In San Francisco Bay Area. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't either. I, but if it's in the yeah, Bay Area, if it's in the Bay Area, then there's a lot more. It's a more harsh environment. Yeah, I know it's just an, an old speedway track of some kind. Yeah, uh, I think um, that is. I think that might be in the East yeah. Bay. I grew up in the East Bay, and you mm-hmm. mentioned the Hell's Angels, and I grew up in Richmond, and the Hell's Angels. People think they originated in Oakland, but I think they actually originated in Richmond. Just as a side note, there. Yeah. I'm afraid, you know, as a Welshman, my geography of the American West Coast <laughs> yeah. not terribly, not terribly wonderful. Well, I won't I look it. Know. I won't look it up right now. But mm. um, okay, but, that's you know, great. there's a young young fan who, who was just there to enjoy the music was murdered um, by the Hell's Angels, who, who had taken it upon themselves to provide security, and you know that 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 seems to be the absolute turning point. Although there's also quite a lot of evidence um, beforehand that that. Um, that the, the Rolling Stones got a bit fed up with with Kenneth Anger anyway, and that that they were moving on, and that period was over. And I think he um, one one of they, they were really his patrons. Um, one of the astonishing things about Anger, which is a, a, a considerable achievement, is he's never really had any public funding or or financial support to make his films from any any you know any kind of organised source, and. Um, the, the invocation of my demon brother and Lucifer rising um, have, by all accounts, you know, had had quite a lot of the Rolling Stones money um, in mm. them, and I think it just got to the point where 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 that was enough and too much. Well, that's interesting because um, I often I often think of Kenneth Anger as being sort of the rebel in Hollywood, right? And he's like a counter yeah. to he's like a counter to Hollywood commercialism, but mm. now. After what you just said, it almost sounds like he may be a distillation of Hollywood. <laughs> well, he's a, he's a really complex figure, and I think it's hard to uh, reduce um, someone as kind of as important as Anger to you know to 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 a couple of simplistic ideas really. But he he is a complex figure because he 
from a very early age, he was fascinated by Hollywood. He lived as a child um, in Hollywood. He used to, in his, in his childhood and teens, he used to look at and indeed play in the mouldering huge sets of, of um, D.W. Griffith's films, which were still there. And he had family members who, who worked in the silent film industry. So from the off, you know, he, he was a Hollywood kid and he loved silent cinema. And Hollywood is such a complex beast, isn't it? That, you know, it's possible to um, be a rebel, but also love some things about it as well. So, well, yeah, that's, that's, what I'm, that's my point, really, is that um, I do actually consider Kenneth Anger to be extremely important and his movies to be of utmost importance. And I think that they're, to me, they're much more important than any Hollywood movies. But that's what I'm, but that's what I'm just thinking. There, it does seem to there does seem to be a dichotomy between him being uh, an outsider and ha and him being the the spirit of hollywood you know i think so i yeah. think that's absolutely spot on yeah. i mean you know his 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 films oh uh you know are steeped in the the visual language of silent cinema they're um you know that they he he loves popular culture um references to all manner of films and popular music, The Wizard of Oz, etc., etc. But at the same time, he's working in a completely different way. And, you know, it, wouldn't, it would have been impossible um, to make a Kenneth Anger film in the kind of Hollywood industrial complex. They're made frame by yeah. frame, handmade, beautiful artifacts. Yeah. And it, Hollywood could, could, could not begin um, to make a film like that. It just would be totally impossible. Well, that, they're just so beautiful. That's the thing about them. And um, I've actually been thinking about the concept of, um, of what is it about this kind of dark, satanic, because that is the word that we need to use, satanic or Luciferian genre of art. What mm -hmm. is it about it that makes it so rich? Is it specifically Kenneth Anger that made this rich, beautiful imagery and he just happens to be a Luciferian? Or a Crowley um, devotee, or is it that um, there's something innate and innately inherent about satanic iconography that is in itself rich and beautiful? Well, I'd see it slightly. I'd see it slightly differently um, myself because I think what anger does is that if you if you look at Alistair Crowley's work, it's 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 written work, you know, and the the art form of most twentieth mid twentieth century cultists was the book. And he, he writes in great depth about a web of symbolism, um, about constructing rituals, all of which have um, complex uses of color and objects um, and performance elements to them. But, we, you know, but, but they're, they're essentially writings. And what Anger does is he takes all that stuff and makes it visual. Mm -hmm. um, so, so in his films... He's, he's using Crowley's color symbolism, he's adding to it, but he, he's, his, his, his films are in themselves magical artifacts. You know, they're, they're oh, yeah. works of art and they're magical artifacts, and he's expressing all those principles, but in, 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 in his own way, you know, and, and they're, I, I consider them to be works of genius. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and absolutely unique. So, I, I, for me, it's not a question of, you know, is this... Um, is, is it the Luciferian current that throws up these works, really? It, it's no anger is part of the Luciferian current, but he's interpreting it in his own way and making something very, very beautiful out of it. But he is inheriting a sense of color and ritual from his predecessors. 
Yes, he is. Um, but by the time he makes his last completed film, Lucifer Rising, he's added to that. Um, and, mm-hmm. and he, you know, he, he's, he's taken the mythos in his own direction. He's personalized it. And he's added his own layers of color symbolism, which actually weren't there in Crowley. Um, and 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 so so you know he's not he's not just slavishly following Crowley at all, he he's he's um, he's creating his own layers of of, of symbolism and, and. Well, was was Crowley influenced at all by the Golden Dawn? Because their ritualistic yes. their ritualistic elements were all very colorful, weren't they? Yes, yes. Crowley Crowley, be, Crowley began with the Golden Dawn and was very involved in it, but um, parted company with it after quite a short time. And uh, and then went you know went on to do his other work. But yeah, the the the, the genesis of his his ideas are, are are come from the Golden Dawn. Yes. So then, what what we can see is this this strain uh, coming from basically beginning with the Golden Dawn. I think Re- I think we can say that to a great extent. And I then, think so. And then yeah. coming a vein of of this culture, and it's we could call it counterculture, we could call it pop culture, but it's it is a legitimate culture traveling down through the 20th century. It, how is it related to other aspects of pop culture or pop culture as a whole? Yeah, one of the great things about anger is his influence on subsequent cinema and and in a way on 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 music too, because you see what anger does um, probably unintentionally when he starts out is he invents a music video um, 20 really? years before it happens. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, and, and this, is, this is to do with um, access to technology and means of filmmaking because anger, anger has never made a film with um, diegetic sync sound, you know, where, where, we, uh, we, where, where sound is recorded on, on the film or on a separate soundtrack as, uh, as people speak it. There's no dialogue in an anger film. And the reason for that was that he didn't have the means available to do it. Yeah, yeah. And so from the off, um, he was mar- marrying up um, music with, you know, with, with images. Uh, and the music had to, had to come afterwards. But he developed this really unique way, starts really in Scorpio Rising, of um, using uh, pop so- early 60s pop songs um, it, which work, which work with and against his images. Um, the the irony uh, which is there in in you know there's loads of it in a wonderful irony in Scorpio Rising comes from the way that we hear sixties um, girl group songs and counter uh, you know counterbalanced and, and and offset against the images he's showing us. And so so there's a sequence in that film where. Um, we see bikers getting dressed for ritual intercut with um, images from a, a, a kind of a Bible society, Sunday school film, The Crucifixion of Jesus. And, and we, we hear the soundtrack, we hear She's a Rebel, He's a Rebel. Oh, and right, so, right, yeah, yeah. You know, and, that, that was, and, and that's, become, that's become a fairly standard way of using uh, images with, with, in, in music video. But that was the first time anyone seen it. And that all comes from anger. So, yeah, he's had a profound influence on, really has, uh, yeah. on music yeah. through that, you know. Was Custom Car Commandos, like, part of Scorpio Rising, or was that, does that predate it? What's, what's the difference between uh, those two? No, it's afterwards. And I think he probably intended it to be quite a large film, but couldn't get the resources to do it or whatever. And I, I, I love Custom Car Commandos because it's, it's, um, it's a perfect marriage of, of his interest in pop culture, his interest in magic, because 
it's the film about the, the tarot image, the chariot, and all the colours in it come from the girls in Dawn and Crowley's Princess Colour Scale. Um, but, but it's, you know, it's a film about a hot rodder, um, with, with again, you know, that lovely, um, girl group kind of soundtrack. Um, very, very fond of that film. Okay, and then you'd mentioned somebody named Jack Smith, uh, Creatures. Yes. What, what does that refer to? I have no idea. I've never heard of okay, that. Okay, Jack, Jack Smith was um, a filmmaker from the later period of the U.S. avant-garde, very active in New York in the early 60s, had come out of um, avant-garde theatre and made a film which was very notorious, famous or notorious, choose your word, um, at the time called Flaming Creatures, which, which was banned all over the place because it was very orgiastic. Um, and it, it, it's a kind of a very, very wonderful, very, very messy film, impossible to describe in words, I'm afraid, um, but, but should be watched. What do you see uh, in the future of curation of art cinema? Well, that, that's, I, I don't know how, too much about how it's working in the US, but that's happened in Britain already. That's happening right now. Um, there's, a, there's a great show on in London at the moment in Camden, curated by... Um, the filmmaker Guy Sherwin, great avant-garde filmmaker who's been active since the, um, since the 70s. And, uh, you know, that, that's a gallery show. Uh, the, the Tate Gallery here, Tate, both Tate Modern and Tate Britain, regularly show um, the work of artist filmmakers as gallery work. And, and the work is being looked at um, in, uh, as, as part of art practice here completely now. It wasn't like that weren't so much when I was starting to do it at the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s because there was a kind of resistance by the tr more traditional art forms, pa painting, sculpture, etc., of, of seeing film uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, as equal to them. But with the passage of time, that has mercifully gone away. So here, um, experimental film, artist film, is very, very much um, part, part of the visual arts. It's looked at that way, and you have um, major artists, film artists like Tacita Dean um, exhibiting wonderful work at, at Tate Modern. And, and so it, it, it doesn't, it, it, that, that battle seems to have been won here, really. That's good to hear. That's very good to hear. How is, how is it exhibited? Is it just looped, the films? I, I think it depends on the artist and the work. I mean, according to the artist's intentions is, is the answer to that, really. So there's a lot of installations, um, you know, where, where the work is really exhibited according to the artist's instructions. It might be loops, it might be on walls, it might be in all sorts of situations, multi-screen, etc. And, and other works which are designed for, for single-screen exhibition are shown that way, you know. So... Um, Anger had a London show at Spruce Megas Gallery in 2010, and they were projecting Invocation of My Demon Brother um, onto a wall in the gallery space. And it was, uh, the work was accompanied by a, a lot of his photographs and, and stills. And so it's really, you know, the, the work is really exhibited in, in the way that the artist intends it to be, which is great, you know, it's how it should be. Do you think there will ever come a time where uh, cinema art will be exhibited, say, on an iPad, on a loop, you know, uh, affixed to the wall next to paintings? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. 
I hope so, yeah. My last question is, uh, have you heard of the Abbey of Thelema and its current condition? Because obviously Kenneth Anger went there and um, restored the murals, the frescoes that Aleister Crowley did. But yes, I, in its, yeah, current, I, it's currently just basically falling down. And have yeah. you heard, heard of anybody making an attempt to rescue it? No, I haven't. Um, and um, I, don't know, I don't know what the state of play is, but I do know that down the years, um, it's, you know, it's something that's been looked on really unfavorably by the people of Sicily and by the Italian authorities. And I don't think there's any great rush uh, going on to conserve it. I, I think it's a real shame because I think it's a culturally significant building and, and, and it should be uh, it should be preserved. But I'm not uh, I, I, it's not my specialist area but I'm not, I'm, so I'm not aware of any particular attempts at the moment to, to conserve it but I would, I would hope it would be. And last I heard it was in a very ruinous condition. Yeah, I, it seems like somebody needs to go down and at least uh, take the, rescue the, the remaining frescoes because yeah, they're know, falling yeah. apart you know yeah it'd be tragic if all we have you know we have angus lovely photographs of it but it would be tragic if that that's all that is uh, handed down to future generations i think thank you for listening to the great work radio the great work radio and blog are features of jesse war's website and can be accessed at jessewar.com that's j e s s e w a u g h dot com We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoyed today's program. To download the Great Work Radio program files, just search for the name Jesse War in the iTunes Store.